0: Welcome to the sermon podcast for the Midtown Fellowship Granny White Congregation in Nashville, Tennessee. This fall, we are studying one of the most challenging and difficult-to-understand books of the whole Bible, Revelation. But what we will find as we study this book is that God is reframing our reality through what He teaches us in it. If you're in town and would like to join us in person, our services are at 8.30 and 10.30 on Sunday mornings at 3410 Granny White Pike, Nashville, Tennessee. Good morning. That was kind of pathetic. Uh, I know it's fall break. Come on. Good morning. morning. Hey, it is great to be with you. Thank you for being here. Uh, My name is Gary Anderson. I serve as the pastor here at Midtown Fellowship Granny White. Uh, It is a joy to be in God's house with you together this morning. We are continuing our fall sermon series through the book of Revelation, uh, and we are in Revelation 6 today. Uh, I'm going to invite Jack Barrett up. He is going to read Uh, today's scripture we are in revelation chapter six and we are doing the whole chapter and it's a doozy
1: revelation six now i watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and i heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder come and i looked and behold a white horse This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Everybody, clear. <laughs> um, I, at the at the great risk of being maybe a little bit too honest and a little bit too transparent this morning, uh, I don't really want to preach this sermon this morning. Um, I have not been preaching for a really long time, but a number of years, and this is undoubtedly one of the hardest sermons that I've ever had to prepare. Uh, I feel like I've been in and out and around this text a hundred times this week, and as I'm standing up in front of you right now, I'm still not entirely sure what God wants me to say about what this text has to say to us. And so, um, to that end, let's go on a journey together. One of, the, uh, one of the books that I've been reading to help me with Revelation, a lot of you all have as well, it's a book called Discipleship on the Edge by a guy named Daryl Johnson, not the great fullback from the Cowboys in the late 90s, the Moose, someone else, that would be sweet if that was him um, he says about this chapter, this is the point in Revelation that most people stop reading Revelation. And this is the point that most pastors stop preaching Revelation. And, uh, having sat in it this week, I like, oh, I get that. I feel that intimately. So I'm going to pray for us. Well, most of them to pray for me. Uh, and then we'll get into, uh, what I think we can learn from Revelation chapter six. So, uh, God, would you just be with us in this moment? Uh, We love when we come to your word and it is like steak and dessert and candy. Uh, And we don't love it when we come to your word and it's like vegetables. Um, But we all know that we have to have vegetables in order to be whole and healthy. And so I pray, God, that as we come to this chapter, which is not really clear, is really confusing, and what I think it's teaching is actually really hard for us, I pray that you would just soften our hearts to receive what it is that you have for us this morning. I pray for myself in this moment, God. I pray that you would... Uh, do what only the living God can do and that you would speak through me and that you would bring some sense of clarity to what is a, a really hard passage. Uh, we believe, as you say in your word, that you are not a God of confusion. And so we ask that as we spend these few moments studying your divinely inspired word, uh, that you would speak to us through it, that you would teach us through it, and, uh, and, God, that you would actually change us because of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So very early in my working career, uh, I worked with a guy who was a a good bit older than me, and uh, he was a follower of Jesus, but he had not been a follower of Jesus his whole life. And one day we were talking, and he was telling me about what he had been like uh, before he came to Jesus, and Jesus had uh, effected really a radical change in this man's life. And he told me this story, which I have never forgotten. Uh, He said, he loved macaroni and cheese. It was like one of his, if not his favorite dishes. And uh, right after he got married, his new wife decided to make macaroni and cheese for him one night for dinner. And so uh, he came home from work, again, newlyweds, like first couple weeks of being married. He came home from work. She had made this delicious, you know, golden brown. We're not talking Kraft or Annie's box mac and cheese. We're talking about the the real deal with the sauce and the cheese and the noodles and and all that. And so he puts a heaping pile of this on his plate for dinner, and he takes a bite of it, and as he starts chewing it, he realizes that there is something else in the macaroni and cheese. And he realizes that she has chopped up some onion and put it in the macaroni and cheese, and he hated onions. And so what he did was he spit that mouth of food back out on his plate, and he went to the stove and picked up the pan of macaroni and cheese— And walked out the back door and dumped it out into the yard. You can laugh. Come on, don't be so (laughs) self-righteous. Totally shocking. Um, Totally out of like, we're not talking. We're not preaching on marriage this morning. Okay. (laughs) He. This was something that he he loved. Like loved everything about it. It was, it was what he wanted. He loved the, the cheese and the noodles and the carbs and the fats and the sauces and the butter and the cream and all that stuff. Uh, but when there was just one thing that he didn't like in it, there's one thing called onions. Um, it wasn't like it took it from a 10 to an 8 for him and it's like, well, I can, I can make it through this. It's not ideal. It, it, it made it unpalatable. It made it untenable. It made it so that he, he couldn't even accept any part of it. He had to throw the whole thing out. Part of what is so hard about what we're going to talk about today is we are talking about the onion that sits in the mac and cheese of God. We are talking about the one thing... We are talking about the one thing that more than any other thing in all of our theology, in all that this book teaches us about who the God of this Bible is, we are talking this morning about the one thing that makes most people look at this God and say, I can't deal with that. I think most of what we believe God is and God stands for it, like most of the world would say, I'm on board with that. Love, kindness, grace, mercy, (laughs) peace, salvation, renewal, all of those things. But when we get to um, the truth, the teaching, that amongst all of those things, God is also a God of judgment and wrath, that is where most people say, nope, uh, I'm going to have to take that pan and take it out to the backyard and chuck the whole thing into the woods. Because that is not something that I want to be a part of. That's not something that I want to deal with. And here's the thing, if I can just bring it a little bit closer to home this morning, that is not all those people out there. There are a lot of us in here and this is not a you all, this is, this is a me. This is why this has been a hard sermon for me to work on. There are a lot of us in here who look at these passages, who look at the truth, the teaching of Scripture, that God is not only a God of love, but that he is also a God of judgment and wrath, and we're like, that is really hard for me. That is not, that is, that is a, that is almost feels like it's unpalatable. That almost feels like um, I can't deal with the whole thing just because of this part, that seems so contrary to what I would want God to be and what I would expect him to be and what what I would hope that God would be. So, today's text, Revelation chapter 6, at the heart of it, is about God's judgment and wrath. But before you check out and dump the pan and head out the back doors to go pick up your kids and go home, my hope is that in the next few minutes as we look at this passage together, um, that God will actually teach us some things and that we may actually end up on the other side of this Sermon, myself included, with not a disdain for this part of God's character, but for a gratitude and a belief in it. Because it actually, when we see the whole picture of who God is, we're going to see that this is actually the way it has to be. So um, there are a lot of things in this passage that are not clear. Uh, but I am going to do my best to lean into the things that, uh, that are clear. So um, when we come to Revelation chapter 6... First thing we got to do, as we have been doing all the way through this whole deal, is we got to find out, we got to remember where we are, right? We're jumping around a bit. So um, again, I'm hoping by the end of this series, you all can just do this in your sleep. Revelation chapter 1, vision to John, island of Patmos. Jesus shows up, says, I have a picture, a vision I want to give to you, and I want you to send it to the seven churches. Revelations 2 and 3, messages to the seven churches, but those are really a message to what? The whole church. That's a message for the book of Revelation, the the apocalypse of Revelation, is for all of Jesus Christ's church. Revelation 4 and 5, John is caught up into the heavenly throne room. He catches a vision of God the Father. Creatures, angels, elders, all worshiping God the Father. He's holding a scroll in his right hand. No one is worthy to open the scroll except for one. He hears that the lion is worthy to open the scroll. He sees that it is a lamb that has been slain who is worthy to open the scroll. Again, spoiler alert, that is Jesus And what that means is that Jesus is the one who is able to achieve God's purposes for creation. Jesus is the one who is able to bring God's intended end to their fulfillment. Jesus is the one who can bring heaven to earth. And so Jesus, the lamb who has been slain, goes and takes that scroll from God the Father. That's Revelation 4 and 5. Revelation chapter 6, which Jack just read for us, is the lamb beginning to open the seven seals that are on that scroll. So Jesus is the only one who can open it, here's here's him doing it, and so what we get in Revelation chapter 6 is the beginning of God's plan of fulfillment for all of creation uh, coming to fruition. So, as we come to this text, um, it is very confusing, and we just need to uh, acknowledge that. Um, Virtually, this is a little bit of an overstatement, but almost every commentary, every scholar I looked at this week has a different interpretation of what is going on in Revelation chapter 6. So I just want to acknowledge before God and all of you, I don't totally understand what's going on in this chapter. And I don't share that with you to give you like a little crack in the chink of our armor of faith or to say, oh, this is something that, uh, man, if you can't understand what's going on here, then that really gives me some doubts about the whole rest of it. No, I, th- I think um, just like in life, there are some things that we don't understand. When we come to a God who is All knowing, all powerful, um, all everything, creator of all, who is, his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. When we come to a God who he is the potter and we are the clay, if we come to him with the um, expectation that uh, I should be able to understand everything about you, I actually am, I would actually be more skeptical of someone who comes and says, I know what all of this means, than someone who is willing to come and say, there's stuff in here that's hard to understand. And so just if you are like, I, I'm struggling a little bit as I come to this, I don't understand everything that's happening in Revelation, uh, me too, welcome to the club. But despite there are some things that are hard to interpret, there are some things that are really clear. And so that's what we're going to do our best to lean into today. I want to draw out uh, three things that I think are, are clear uh, that John is showing us or that Jesus is throwing us through, showing us through John in Revelation chapter 6. And the first is this. Uh, this place is brutal. The the kingdom of the world is a disaster. This place is is brutal. So the lamb begins to open the scroll or open the seals of the scroll. And what happens with the first four seals is we get this recurring um, scene where he he breaks one of the seals. Uh, One of the creatures says, come and enter stage left. There comes a horse and a rider, which represents something. Now, there's, again, all kinds of discussion about, like, are these riders from God and sent by God? Are the, are the creatures calling for Jesus, and actually the riders rise up in opposition to Jesus? And there is, there's a hundred other theories about what's going on here, and, and most of them, not all of them, most of them have some pretty decent support in the text. Wherever we land on what the specifics are of what is happening here in the first four uh, seals being broken, here's the common denominator. This is the picture of the great tribulation from the perspective of earth. Remember, we talked about that last week, great tribulation. We believe it started when Jesus came to earth, the kingdom of God crashed into the kingdom of the earth. Uh, This is what it feels like and looks like to be on the earth between the first advent of Jesus and the second advent of Jesus. So time would not permit us to break down what all of these things represent, Uh, The point of these riders is not to figure out which one is Hitler and which one is Stalin and which one is whoever. That is not it. Remember, it's images. It's pictures. It's painting a picture of reality for us. But we can't understand a few things about what's going on here. So first rider, first creature says, come. First rider comes on a white horse, has a bow and a crown is given to it, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, full disclosure, some scholars think this is Jesus. Some scholars think this is Jesus riding out to conquer his enemies and then evil comes behind him. Really good scholars, really smart people. Uh, I don't subscribe to that because if Jesus is the lamb who is opening the seal and then is also the rider who is entering onto the scene, that would feel a little bit different. And in the context of all of the other riders are bringing suffering, pain, and disaster with them, uh, it seems appropriate to include the first rider in that. So the first rider has a crown and is coming out to conquer and to conquer. Second horse. Now this is a horse of another color. My daughter got me a t-shirt for my birthday that says dad jokes are how I roll, except I roll is I-Y-E-R-O-L-L. So just enter into it, all right? Uh, Second creature, second seal, second creature, come. This horse is bright red. Its rider is permitted to take peace from the earth so that men should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. Red is the color of blood. That word for slay is to violently kill. Uh, He brings violence and death and war onto the earth. Third seal, third living creature says, Come. This is a horse of another color, it's a black horse. And uh, it has a pair of scales in its its hand. And in verse 6, we get this weird stuff about a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. Uh, We think this horse represents famine and scarcity and inequality because he's got these scales and uh, there's inflation and that's a day's wage for just enough food, to not enough food for even a whole family. Uh, And then the fourth seal, again, a horse of another color. Fourth creature says, come, I looked and behold... This is verse 8, a pale horse in Greek that is actually literally a pale green horse. Uh, this is the barf horse, and, uh, and it is because it represents the color of a corpse, and that's made explicit in the next clause when it says its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. This is the Wyatt Earp from Tombstone Horse. Anybody? Yeah. You tell them I'm coming, and hell's coming with me. Because this rider represents death and he's bringing hell behind him. And so we get to the end of these four horses, the end of the first four seals, and everything's really clear, right? So we're good on what's going on here. Holy cow, what is going on here? Remember, Revelation is a picture, it is not literal. So this does not mean literally that there are horses riding around in the spiritual realm right now. I mean, potentially they are. This doesn't mean that we need to be looking for the four horsemen of the apocalypse at some point before we expect that Jesus comes back. This is a picture, it is an image that is showing us what life feels like in the kingdom of the earth as the kingdom of heaven is bumping up against it and so as we see it in that light as we see it that this is just these are images these are pictures this is painting a picture for us here's what i think the picture is that it's painting for us i think it is painting the picture of what happens when we get our way i think i think the four horsemen of the apocalypse are a picture that God is giving to John and the seven churches and to all of us of what happens when we say, you know what, God? Um, I like my chances. I think I will do it my way. This is what it looks like. It is a world that is full of conquering, of people who want to be rulers with crowns on their head. It is a world that is full of violence and murder, It is a world full of famine and inequality and people having too much and other people not having enough. And it is a world that is marked by death. This is a picture of what happens to creation when it says, ah, we would like to do this without you being involved, God. Uh, One of the most, and maybe it's the most... um, condemning statements that can be made in a relationship is this. I don't know if anyone's ever said this to you or if you've ever ever said this to somebody, but but if you have ever been in a relationship where somebody said to you or you said to them, fine, have it your way. That is one of the most uh, damning statements that can ever be made in a relationship because it says one to the other that you're not willing to listen to me. You're not willing to take the uh, advice or help I'm trying to give you. It's saying, fine, you do it the way you think is best and see how that works out for you. And I believe that is the picture that God is painting for us through John with these first, well, actually in this whole chapter. I mean, we'll, we'll get to the end. But particularly with these four horsemen of the apocalypse, with so many questions about who are they, what are they, what do they represent, they are painting a picture that, that life in this kingdom That our experience in the kingdom of the world, which is positioned over and against the kingdom of God, is a disaster. It is brutal. And I think we feel that. I don't think I have to belabor this point to try and bring it home into our neighborhood. Now look, at some level, like where we live, where this church is placed, in the, the Green Hills, 12 South, Brentwood, Franklin Corridor, sometimes stuff like this feels a long way away. But this, those first four horsemen, that is the lived experience for the vast majority of the world. It is, it, is, it is people who are trying to take power. It is people who are trying to conquer other people. It is inequality. It is scarcity. It is, uh, it is violence. It is bloodshed. It is death. And every once in a while, we um, get the curtain pulled back a little bit for us in this community. And like, like last March it happened... And we get a picture of what John is painting here, that, that, that life in this kingdom during the Great Tribulation is a disaster. When, when we have it our way, it does not end well. Life here, is, life here is brutal. Here's the second thing I want to draw out after that really uplifting, uh, <laughs> encouraging point. Here's the second thing I want us to see. It affects everybody. Everybody suffers under the, under the f- four horsemen of the apocalypse of this kingdom. So uh, jump now ahead with me to the fifth seal, which starts in verse 9. Uh, John says, When he opened, that's the lamb, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. Um, here's what's interesting about that verse. Uh, He says that he sees an altar in heaven and the souls of those who had died for the sake of God were under the altar. Um, What John will tell us later in Revelation chapter 21 is that there is no temple in heaven. God, the Father, and Jesus, the Lamb, are the temple. And so we're not sure there's actually literally an altar in heaven. So this is painting, again, a picture for us of a spiritual reality, which is this. Those, remember, we we jumped around a little bit. If you were here with us last week, remember chapter 7, we talked about those who were sealed, by God before the great tribulation. means they were marked out as his, like the baptism that we just experienced, that he's marked out now as God's. God marks out people as his to protect them from the great tribulation. But here are the souls of those who had been marked out by God and they have been killed for the sake of their witness and for the sake of their bowing their knee to God and to Jesus the Lamb. Again, not entirely sure what all that it means, but here's what's really clear about that that even those who are marked out as gods are going to suffer in the kingdom of the earth. Even those who, are, who have bowed their knee to God the king, who are not uh, bowing their knee to the kingdom of Babylon, to the kingdom of this earth, even those of us who are marked out and sealed by God, protected for eternity by God, they still suffer in the kingdom of the world. Why? Because sin and evil is not individual, it is corporate. Because my sin doesn't just affect me, it affects all of you. And your sin doesn't just affect you, it affects those who are around you. And if you're in this part of this community, it affects this community as well. We are all going to suffer as we move through the kingdom of the earth, as we are in the great tribulation. Um, I believe it was August 4th, 2020, Uh, there was a warehouse in Beirut, capital city of Lebanon. And uh, that warehouse was storing, uh, improperly storing, 2,700 tons of ammonium nitrate. And on August 4th, 2020, a fire broke out in that warehouse, and it ignited that ammonium nitrate, and uh, it created what most people believe is the most powerful non-nuclear explosion in the history of the world. It registered a 3.3 on the Richter scale. It was felt in Europe. Uh, Miraculously, it only killed 218 people. It injured 7,000. It left 300,000 people homeless and caused $15 billion worth of damage. That is a little picture of our hearts. For years, they had been doing something that they shouldn't be doing stocking up, storing this highly flammable, highly dangerous material, not following safety protocols, not doing it the way that it was supposed to be done. And then one little fire that should have probably been pretty easy to put out set that thing off and affected an entire nation, an entire region. That is, uh, albeit a dramatic picture of what life is like for all of us as we move through the kingdom of the world. When when a when a husband and wife get divorced, does that just affect them? No. It creates it creates ripples all the way outside of their friend their family their kids and their family and their friends. When when someone cheats at work, when, when a company cheats, I mean, part of my challenge in this section of the message was when I was trying to think of how do I illustrate this, it was like there are so many potential illustrations. Have you ever heard of Enron? Have you ever heard of Bernie Madoff? Have you ever heard of your You know, neighbor down the street who was cheating on their taxes and the IRS came and took their home and their car and whatever else it was, we do not live in a vacuum. We are all affected by sin and our sin affects those who are around us and those who are around us, their sin affects us. And so as we move through life here, what is just so clear is even though we might have been called, redeemed, saved, and marked out by God, we are still going to suffer. And so here's here's what that means for us as followers of Jesus, is we don't need to be surprised when it happens. Listen to what uh, Peter says, 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Uh, and, And here's the thing, and I'm speaking mostly for myself in this moment. You know how I react when fiery trials come upon me? What is going on? How could this possibly be happening? What kind of God are you? Why are you doing this to me? What have I done to deserve this? Anybody? Just me? No? All right. And if we're going to be faithful to Scripture, that's just not actually an appropriate response. I understand where it comes from because I do it all the time. And you all understand where it comes from because we do it all the time. But the clear message of God's word and one of the few things that's clear in Revelation chapter 6 is that God's children are not going to escape fiery trials as we move through this world. There's a whole bunch of souls under the altar in heaven crying out to God how long because they suffered and died for the sake of bowing their knee to him. So what happens when we suffer in this world How do we respond? I mean, ideally not surprised because Scripture says not to be surprised. Can we be angry? Sure, absolutely. Can we be frustrated, disappointed, sad, confused? All of them. And I would actually say God invites all of those. But one of the truths that we are just going to lean into here as a church is that when we come to Jesus Christ, it does not mean that from that point on it's going to be sunshine and roses, uh, living my best life, name it and claim it, here we go, That's just not the way that God's scripture teaches us, and that's not the lived experience for every single one of us who has bowed our knee to Jesus Christ as Lord. So, um, life here is really hard. It's full of suffering, and that affects everybody. And then here's the last thing I just wanted to to draw out of Revelation chapter 6 God's judgment is real, God's judgment is real, and it's serious. Uh, Pick me up in verse 12. Uh, It says, When he opened the sixth seal, that's the lamb, Jesus opening the seal of the scroll, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Uh, What is happening here? Uh, What is happening here is what Michael Stipe and R.E.M. in the late 90s would have told us is the end of the world as we know it. (laughs) This is a picture of the beginning of the end. It is a picture of literally the fabric of creation being ripped apart which would be totally overwhelming and totally depressing if we didn't have the rest of the book of Revelation. And so just, like, spoiler alert, one of the, like, little bits of hope in the midst of this hard message is that we're going to find out later in Revelation chapter 21 that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So it's not the end of the end. It's the beginning of the end of the world as what? As we know it. And what is happening to those who are not sealed by God? As the fabric of creation is literally being ripped apart. Pick me up in verse 15. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free. All that's saying, like, why why all these categories? It's just saying everybody. Everybody is hiding themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. (laughs) For the great day of their wrath has come, And who can stand? What are they saying? I would rather die than face the judgment or the wrath of God the Father and the Lamb. This is the theme, uh, this last seal, the sixth seal. This is the picture that all of Revelation 6 is painting for us. It is a picture of God's judgment against his enemies. This is the onion in the pot of mac and cheese when it comes to God and what we believe about him. Here's the truth that scripture teaches, and it's hard, and I don't like it, but I'm not God, and so I don't get to choose what I like and what I don't like. The truth of scripture is that not everyone will be saved. The truth of scripture is that all of us have a throne in our life, and we all want to sit on it, and that, that when Jesus, through his his amazing mercy and grace comes into our lives and lets us see who he is and what he has done. When we are able to say, I am imperfectly and, and faultingly going to step off the throne of my life and allow you, God, to sit on the place, in the place where you deserve to sit, the throne of my life, we get a seal and we are safe for eternity. And though we might suffer in this life, we will one day spend eternity in perfection in God's presence for all time. But what scripture teaches is that not everyone will make that decision. And that there are some who will say, I I would rather be God of my own life. And and what Scripture teaches is that in the end, they will face judgment and they will face wrath. And we hate that. I hate that. Because I want a God of love. I I want a God of love and kindness and mercy and grace. But here's what we have to recognize. God is a God of love. It's not what he does. It's who he is. And love draws boundaries. Love draws boundaries. And we all know that, and we want it to be true. Look, uh, 20 years ago, I made the best decision of my entire life, rounding, somewhere around 20 years ago, and I asked my wife Beth to marry me. I love my wife so much. I love her so, so much. and I think she loves me so much too, but come on. But when we made, she's not here right now, so I'm just speaking for her. I'm just speaking for her. Um, I'm pretty sure that's what she would say. Uh, When we got married, we entered into a covenant with each other. A covenant of what? A covenant of love. And when we entered into that covenant of love, that drew boundaries in our lives. That set boundaries for each of our lives. Because now, after I got married to my wife, Beth, uh, exclusive intimate relationships with other women is off the table for me. That is a boundary that I am not to cross. And if I cross that boundary, there are what? There are consequences. And so we want a God of love, but we want a God of love that has no boundaries. But love that has no boundaries is not love. It is tolerance. And we don't want a God that tolerates us. We don't want a God of tolerance. We want a God of love, and that is what he is. And the truth about love is that it draws boundaries. And the boundary when we enter into a covenant relationship with God is that he is now God and we are not. And if we decide that actually I'll do it my way, I think I can be a better God than you, I don't like the way you do it, I don't like the, the, the things that you teach and the things that you say and the things that you call me to The teaching of Scripture is that that now puts us outside the boundary of God's love. Here's another way to look at it. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, which are so weird and so destructive and so unsettling, they are not just all out there. The four horsemen of the apocalypse reside inside each and every one of us. That is not just a picture of how brutal life is in the kingdom of the earth. That is a picture of how brutal our hearts are. Because without the the love and regeneration of God's Holy Spirit inside of us, what do our hearts long for? We want a crown for ourselves. We want to conquer, and we want to continue conquering. We, We want blood. And if you're like, I've never desired someone else's blood or to murder someone, just remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, which is if you have had anger in your heart towards someone else, it is like you have murdered them. We want, we're like, I hate inequality. I, I hate famine. I hate that. But we love inequality when we're the ones who get the goods. We want ours and everyone else can figure it out for themselves. That picture of the four horsemen of the apocalypse is a picture of our hearts. And it is a picture of our hearts which are in rebellion against God and his kingdom. And one day, Jesus is going to return. And scripture in so many places is clear that he comes not just in love, but he comes in judgment. And that's not just judgment for those outside the church, it's judgment for everybody because all of us have the four horsemen of the apocalypse in our heart. And that is what is so beautiful about God's judgment and its wrath, is we cannot know God's mercy and his grace unless we know his judgment and his wrath. If he is not a God of judgment, if he is not a God of wrath, then we don't need mercy, and we don't need grace, and we don't need a Savior. But he is a God, a God of love that judges, and because of that, we need a Savior. And before we get too worked up about how devastating the picture is that Revelation 6 paints for us, let us remember this, and we're going to go home on it. God's greatest judgment and wrath, the day of God's greatest judgment and wrath has already been poured out. And that was 2,000 years ago, and he poured it out on a hill called Calvary. And he poured it out on a man who was hanging on a cross, dying, and that man was his only begotten son, who was also God in the flesh. So God is not just a God of judgment and wrath. He is a God of judgment and wrath who has taken that judgment and wrath upon himself that you and I might never have to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so the, the call of Revelation 6 is not, let's just, let's just dump this whole thing out because there are some onions in it that we don't like. The call of Revelation chapter 6 is, may we do what Revelation 11 calls us to. May we spend the rest of our lives on this earth proclaiming the message that God is a judge, God of judgment who forgives sinners and has taken that judgment upon himself. The reason I did what I did with my life eight years ago was not because I thought I would have a a simpler, easier life if I left the business world and went and became a pastor. I did what I did because I I realized I had one shot at this life. And, And I want my legacy not to be that I built a really comfortable life for my family, but that there are a bunch of people who can say when it comes to the end, I know God because of Gary, or I grew in my love for God because of Gary. And that is not just the call on the life of a pastor. That is a call on the life of every single person who has been marked out and sealed by God. When the, when the saints cry out after the fifth seal, how long until you execute judgment, oh God, what's his answer? A little longer. So not only is he a God who has taken the judgment upon himself, but he is a God who is so patient. Why is he giving more time? So that more people will recognize that they don't do a good job as God of their own life, and they will have the opportunity to bow their knee to the one who is the true God and put him on the throne of their life. We want a God of love, and that is what we have. But love draws boundaries, and actually I think we can praise God for that. Don't throw out the whole pot just because of some onions they might actually make it taste better. Let's pray. God, I'm not even sure, uh, as I stand here right now, I'm not even sure what we ask you for. Except that you would be so real and so beautiful and so lovely to us that your grace and your mercy in light of your judgment would so overwhelm us that we cannot help in this moment but turn around and and throw ourselves down at your feet in worship and praise you because you have not left us alone. You have not said, fine, have it your way, and then exited the picture. But you have come back and come back and come back again, giving us a picture of your son, the one who has taken the four horsemen. You unleash the four horsemen of the apocalypse on your own son so that we might one day know love and peace and joy and grace and mercy in a way that we can't even comprehend in this moment. May that be real to us today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.